Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment of your time to let you know we have finally upgraded our website www.theguiltpodcast.com. It now features a lot more information and is just in general much more useful and looks better. Make sure you get over there and sign up to our new email newsletter, which will be going up free and will keep you updated on the podcast and the cases as they move forward. And the fancy new website design is courtesy of our friends over at Medio Street Media, who are ready to help take your business to the next level. You see, there are countless ways to market your business online. And yeah, that can be overwhelming. But it's not about doing everything. It's about doing the right things. At Medio Street, they take what's often seen as black magic and make it practical. With custom marketing plans, driving leads for businesses in any industry, with any budget. You can check out their toolbox, including web design, social media marketing, SEM, SEO, video production, and more at Mediostreet.com. Conversations are always free, so reach out today to get started. That's Mediostreet.com, M-E-D-I-O, street.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. On the last episode of Guilt. I just said to him, well, I says, if you if you really believe that and you've really got an issue with it, then it's your choice to do something about it. Yeah. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing that he had spoken to the police. But as he says, his main thing to me was... And he said, under no circumstances am I saying that Dave Tomaheri is innocent. I'm just saying that Dave Turner was involved in it with him. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks, it just, um, it can just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is guilt. This will be the penultimate episode of this season of guilt, Finding Heidi. The timing of the conclusion of this season is somewhat fortuitous, as David Tamahedi has been granted one last attempt at an appeal, which I attended only a few days ago. Despite the fact he served 20 years for the double murder, he remains steadfast that he never met the Swedes and was not involved in their murders. The truth of this claim, I believe, will be answered in the final episode of this podcast. I applied for permission to record audio in the courtroom at his appeal, and I'm very pleased to say that neither counsel opposed my application and Justice French approved my request. As such, 
I attended both days and recorded live audio, and I'll be editing and releasing it as two further episodes after the final one next week. However, these episodes will be released for subscribers of the podcast only. There are very real expenses associated with covering this appeal, like flights and accommodation, and those that support the podcast financially are greatly appreciated and rewarded with bonus content like this. Subscribing incurs a small monthly fee or a one-off yearly fee and can be done on Apple by clicking subscribe through your app or Acast Plus by following the link in the description of this episode. I would also like to update on the $10,000 reward for information leading to Heidi's remains. I transferred the cash to my lawyer's account where it's been sitting, waiting. But as yet, no one has come forward to claim the reward. I initially said I'd put the money up for one month. As that month has come to its end, the 10k is being transferred back to me. But I'm going to offer this reward in perpetuity, and I'm going to raise it. A donor who is connected to this case, but wishes to remain anonymous, has promised an additional $5,000 if the reward is claimed. So I'm going to match that $5,000 plus my original $10,000, which means the reward now stands at $20,000. And it will remain open indefinitely for the person that contacts me with information leading directly to Heidi's remains. You can contact me anonymously by simply creating a new Gmail account and emailing brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com and I can outline the steps necessary to claim the reward. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. I want to thank you all for the support of this season of Guilt and I hope you enjoy this penultimate episode. Next week, I will be releasing the final episode which will contain the biggest revelations to date as I pull back the curtain and release information I've been sitting on for a long time. And I believe finally puts together those last pieces of the puzzle of what really took place and why. But for now, episode 19, A New Direction. Let's get into it. I was contacted by a former resident of the Parakawai Valley, Nicky Nickel. In 1990, prior to the discovery of Urban's body, Nicky ran a local horse trekking company and would lead weekly tours down Parakwai Quarry Road and up the very forest road that leads to the location Urban was found. And when we got to speaking, she told me of a second gate that she remembers being in a different spot to where we had conducted our initial searches. So I met up with Nicky and her husband Ross, just out of Whangamata, and we headed down Parakawai Quarry Road. And you go down to the next... Just so around the time that you guys were here, so that was about 90, was it? 90, 90, 90, 90 no, I, We were here over the summer of 90. Yeah. So, okay. the, so the next driveway, I would say, is probably our driveway. So it was a lot more open then though, wasn't it? Yep. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, this one here will be ours. Oh, so this is where you were Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's quite good to see the place. Yeah, it hasn't changed. The front gate hasn't changed. Oh, that's nice. And, and that's the house we built. Oh, you built that? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. And so were you? where were you riding the horses from? From here. Oh, from here, yeah. Yeah, we, we had a 13-acre uh, block in here. Yeah. So we went right up to where these tunnel houses are, was our land, and, oh, yeah. and back to Wavenies was our land. So we used to cross over, we're on the bend, aren't we? We used to cross over somewhere here, there weren't any fences. Oh, okay. The, yeah, those, that, could... that fencing, somewhere here we used to cross over on the horses. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the trekking time, it was actually just some friends and myself. We'd go up onto the Coromandel 800, as we, that's how we knew it. Yeah. And then up to the top of the hill, you can't see it from here now, you came back further, top of the hill there's a Taranaki gate. And that's one of the um, it's one of the areas where I told you I had a very safe horse. Very they, they, it's called being sound. He had yeah, a sound yeah, nature that he he didn't get startled or rattled by anything. Well he just he just went butchers, so I thought Interesting. Uh, yeah. 
And I knew by reading him, I thought, I think we better get out of here. Yeah. I did have a friend with me. I've contacted her about it. She remembers it. Prior to Urban's body being found, Nikki recalls the regular occurrence of one of her horses freaking out when they would reach a certain point up the forest road. And if you're a horse person, you'll know that horses can be very intuitive when it comes to smell or danger in general. So when Urban's body was found in October of 1991, Nikki believed her horses had indeed sensed something dark up in the forest. So the body gets found into what you're deciding, okay, do we keep coming up here? Yeah, we decided to, to stop the trekking and not come up here because it was kind of a little bit like, you know, there's a dead body up here and where is Heidi? And it just seemed a bit um, disrespectful. So, so we didn't come up here and we just really wanted her to be found. I don't have the key to the gate today. So we've left the car at the bottom and we're enjoying the beautiful weather on foot. And after about 35 minutes, we reach the spot Nikki can recall a second gate. Mm. Okay, so you think maybe around here it's... It's interesting, you know, because that, that swamp probably runs all the way back over to here somewhere. Yeah. You know, when we think about what we were yep. looking across to. Yeah, because this is, this is it was um, a fairly steep incline towards the end of the trek, and I'm, have you got time on your, Ryan? Yeah, it's 10 to 12. So we've been going for, let's, let's say we've probably been walking for 35 minutes, 30, but we've been going, we've taken a few breaks and stuff as well. So we've been going for about 35 minutes. That would be right, because I'd take the horses up and back and I'd have it done and dusted in under 40. Yes, that'd be about right, yeah. And we'd go up to the glade, we'd turn around, yeah. um, and then Maureen and I... Take Quite that off, too. Maureen and I decided we'd go further than the glade. It was all scrubby, so she came up here on her own mm. with her horse and a machete and so... Yeah. Um, mm, yeah, it's definitely here. It's definitely here. How does it feel to know that, you know, you were literally going up and turning around right in that spot and Urban's body was right there? It was, um, there was a sensing because the horses were on edge once we went through the gate. They, they were just oh. edgy. Yeah, so tell me about that. And yeah. Okay, so we go up and I thought, well, I'm not going to go any further because I don't want to have any crashes. I don't want anyone to come off. You know, I did say right at your own risk. I had no liability. Yeah. Um, so... Yep, so then we're up there. It was beautiful. I remember looking at it and thinking, it's just so perfect. But I don't want to come here again. You know, I just didn't want to come up here. And I had no idea why. You know, I, I get things and I don't know why. You know, I can't name something. Some, some things I can. Yeah. And so you said that the horse is... What, what have you got here? Is that that coordinate? Yeah. And that's northeast from here. Ross has been carrying a GPS unit as we've made our way up the forest road. And now, as we stand in the location, Nikki says she recalls the second gate. He's looking at it intently, with somewhat a look of shock on his face. He tells me that when he turned on this device yesterday to bring with him to store locations, there was already a point on the screen and it bizarrely was a coordinate in the Parakawai Valley. That coordinate this might sound real weird. Where, 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 so is, where is the coordinate sitting? Oh, really? 180 metres that way. Okay, so what, what's... Um, it's just, Let's open our minds for a second, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, I used to use this little GPS to go fishing. Yep. And I haven't used it for years. Yeah. Well, probably four years. Mm. And I said to Nikki the other day, I better get the batteries out and charge it. Yeah. So I took them out, put them in, charged them, and then touch it again. And I've never ever been here. Yep. And I switched it on last night. We've been praying, asking the Lord. Hey. There's this line from where we stayed to this specific coordinate. The, the one you're saying is just here. Yeah. Yeah. So I took I took a photo of it on my phone because I didn't want to lose it. Wow. And then the batteries went flat on this, and I lost it. So I've re-put it in there. 
But this is the photo that I took originally. Wow, that's incredible to be fair. It's, like I say, it sounds weird, but wow. that's the photo of it. And that's the, that pink line is basically back where we stay. Jesus, I'm getting goosebumps. There's your coordinate there. And looking at that, that's on the other side of that swamp, on that side of it. How far from here? About a couple hundred metres. It looks like it's about 180 metres. Yeah, well, I reckon that would be probably right at the tip of that swamp. Mm. I mean, I might be wrong on the slightly on the, on exact, the, on yeah. the exact distance, but yeah, somewhere in that. And you get you got northeast. Yeah, I'm. I'm I was oh, just right, just northeast just, yeah. from where this gate is, because that's north. I got northeast before you even went near that thing. It, it you know, wow. it was nowhere near. It was turned off. It was nowhere near me. So when I, I spoke it out, it's got the coordinates yeah. on it. Um, that's wild. It's. I, I, I mean, what no. are the chances of that? It's got to be like infinite, infinitely yeah. small chance that it would randomly pick out those coordinates. Because I, I never, I never put anything in it. I just turned it on. So you've never taken that up here before. Nope. No, he's never, never he's, before. he's never been here. Never put a waypoint in or anything nope. for this spot. No, nope. never ever. Nope. Wow, that is quite. Cool. The only place that thing's been is the water, the sea. That's for only fishing. Been in the sea, this thing. Yeah. According to Ross. He's never brought this GPS unit here to Parakawai and hasn't used it in years. And when he turned it on yesterday, there was a point displaying on the screen and the coordinates of that point on his GPS device right now are showing a spot about 180 metres from where we're standing, which is the spot Nikki can recall there being a second gate. Slightly above the location of the large swamp below where Urban's body was discovered. Could this second gate be the one Darren Lindsay was referring to when he spoke to Linda Millen and said he saw the car parked the second day, which Linda referred to in her diary as being near the swamp? Is this the swamp that Darren said people should be looking for Heidi? And is this GPS coordinate pointing that out for us? It's wild stuff. But GPS coordinate or not, if Nikki is correct about this being the location of the second gate, it could make a lot of sense. And it means that this swamp is still right in the crosshairs of our upcoming searches. If you'll remember back to episode 10, titled She Had Puffy Eyes, I met Rodney Topaki who has family property in Ferratoa, which is a small beach town only 10 minutes south of Whangamata. To refresh your memory, Rodney believes he saw a man walk into the old Whangamata pub holding Heidi by the hand. He said she had puffy eyes, like she'd been crying. He said they walked in the door, then immediately left, like they were looking for someone. He said they saw them drive away in a Subaru wagon back towards Whangamata. Rodney then believes he saw the same car parked next to an old shack in the bush just above Ferratoa. Recently, I was contacted by someone who had been told many years ago that Heidi's remains could be found in old Māori burial caves in the bush near this shack. Due to the proximity of where I was told these caves could be found, and where Rodney says he saw the vehicle, I deemed it worthy to investigate. The forest surrounding the area of the shack is owned by Rodney's iwi, so I asked if we could take a look, and he agreed. So on a beautiful sunny day, I picked Rod up in Ferratoa, and we drove the short couple kilometres from his home to the bush entrance to where he saw the Subaru back in 1989. Okay, going to meet Rodney Topaki. And I'm very excited actually about what this might be. I had a, an anonymous caller the other day and uh, told me something pretty interesting. In one kilometer, turn left. And uh, it's to do with apparently some old mouldy burial caves, which uh, are near Fedotoa, and apparently this person tells me that this is where Heidi's remains can be found. 
They said someone told them this a long time ago, 20 years ago, maybe. Can't remember who, of course, told them. Um, but yes, yeah, so they didn't know the exact location of the caves, but with a bit of research, managed to figure it out. And and um, Rodney Tolpaki is, you know, I spoke to him earlier in the podcast about seeing a vehicle uh, in a certain spot. And um, yeah, he's the person I've gone to to have a chat to about this because his family, his family are connected to this area. And um, yeah, he's gonna hopefully take me today to to, um, to see these these caves. He doesn't actually know where they are either, but he's been told. You know, and I mean, it's it, you know, it sounds like a pretty fantastic story again. But you know, I have to check all of these things out. Uh, just double check that I've got the right address. Yep. Hey mate, good, good. Rod? Oh, there you are. Oh, this is a nice looking wagon. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Just watch your head. Oh, yeah. Are you just doing this up, are you? No, I bought this last year when I came back from New Zealand. Yeah, how you used to own all of this, and then in the old days, before the. English came to New Zealand. Well, I suppose when the English came to New Zealand, they were still rowing their canoes up to Auckland to sell their produce. Yeah. And people used to die on the way, so they used to park them on the properties here and pick them up on the way back. Oh, right. Then now he said to them, well, you've got so many dead people here, you might as well have the land. So they gave them the land. You can drive right in there. I've been here before. But the last time I came, I didn't have Rodney with me. So my understanding of exactly what he saw wasn't complete. Initially, I'd thought he'd seen the vehicle from over a hundred metres away, from the Utapa or Māori cemetery below. But in reality, he had walked right past the shack and the vehicle. And from that distance, there could be no mistaking what he saw. It was definitely a Subaru, and it looked out of place. Just park up here. Park here, yeah. What a view, eh? Mm. That is absolutely stunning. Well, originally when I was a kid, um, Davis Farno had a house here. And then some bloody hippies come in and lived in it and then burned it down. And there used to be a, like a batch here and a lean-to, and that's when I saw the um, Subaru parked in the lean-to, and I thought, oh, the the family have stepped up, they've gone away from Holdens and um, Fords and gone into Subarus. So where's the Urupa where? Yeah, it's down there. You walk down there, up the other side through the bush there, see those big pine trees on the outside there? Up, da- up down there? Yeah. Just to the left of those two pine trees, okay. there's a track that goes right up, you can drive up. Okay. But lately the tree there has fallen down so you can't really drive down there unless you've got a four wheel drive and go around it. So you were down there mowing, did you say? Yeah, I, I mowed all this, the whole lot. It was full of blackberry. Yeah, and it was just rubbish, and I cleaned it up because I had the tractor and slasher. And, and that used to be all gardens down there. I remember my grandparents used to have big gardens down there. Yeah. Yeah. So you were down here mowing? Yeah. Or clearing that out? And yeah. that's when you look back up here? Well, no, I saw it when I came past it because I had to come along here oh, and so go down. Oh, so yeah. you were literally right Yeah, I was there. right there, yeah, yeah. And so there was a shack here. Yeah, a shack and a lean-to, and that's where the Subaru was parked. Right here? Yeah. And it was a few years after that, they, um, Davis Farno came over with a bulldozer and cleaned this level. This was never used to be level, so they've sort of claimed a bit of that land. Yeah. So that, and you reckon that was the same Subaru you saw at the, at the pub? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, eh? Yeah. But you didn't see anyone at this time, did you? No, just no, the I didn't car. see anyone, just a car, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But those caves will be over that way. Yep. And I don't know where a track would go through to them, but I know, uh, well, I was told a lot of guys go up there and grow weed up there. Right, okay. Have their little plots hidden away in there. 
But I mean, if it's not far from here, I mean, shit, this could. Yeah. Pause. All right, so I guess we should. Yeah. Oh, so I sort of thought when, when you initially told me, I thought you were sort of way down there and you were looking up from a distance. No, no, no. no. I was right, right here. Past. Yeah, right past, yeah. So well, that's why I thought, oh, the family have stepped up away from Holdens and Fords and yeah. gone into Sabaris. Yeah. yeah, but it was, it was facing that way. You know, you didn't see bill bars or anything. No, like no, no. That's interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, and I mean, who would back then? I mean, who would know about this this place? No, it would only be family. Yeah. And the Tamaheres would know because over the other side of the hills there, that's Matilda block, yeah. and that's where they are, and that's what they own. That block over there, they don't own, own anything on this side. So what do you reckon we can sort of head up? Oh, there looks like a bit of a track up there. Yeah, we'll find an entrance. It may seem like I'm covering the same ground again here, and I am. But there's a reason for this, which will become apparent very soon. Standing here in this spot, the Sabara was parked, it's only a 500 metre walk down a track through the bush to the water's edge. On the right, this bush gives way to dangerous cliff faces, constantly hammered by ocean waves. And to the left is the town of Firatoa and the beach. Rodney and I continue on from this spot in search of the burial caves. We have a rough idea of their location, but ultimately we fail to find them, but come to the conclusion that if they are where we think they are, then it seems very unlikely this is where Heidi will be found. Dropping Rodney back in Furatoa, I thank him for his time, and he loads me up with oranges off the tree before getting back to work renovating his family property. It's already been an interesting day. But Rodney isn't the only person I plan on seeing today in Furatoa. My next interview is only a few blocks away, with local resident Mary Williams, who may hold one of the key missing pieces regarding the movements of Heidi and Urban. When you, you know, your experience with seeing Heidi and Urban, and tell me, tell me that whole story. Yes, it started off um, with some friends, neighbours, you know. Um, we thought we would like to go over to Thames. I've got a feeling the new pack and save might have been open, you know, but I'm not sure. I'm not really sure about that, but um, we decided we'd go for a, a bit of a shopping trip to, to Thames. And there were four of us in the car, I believe, neighbours, and Joyce Bridges was just over there, me here, and Mari Hunter, and another lady just over there. So, you know, we, went, we were going to Thames, and Joyce was driving her car, and um, she noticed that I, as she was driving, she said, oh, there's a, that couple there. Um, they're, you know, they're very unusual. And um, looking, and so we looked, they were just north of the, the surf club where a lot of people used to park by the dead tree, as we called it. They got struck by lightning or something. And they were, this couple were looking out to sea. And um, so... We kind of slowed down, and I think we actually stopped, you know, we, and um, I'm pretty sure we actually stopped because just before the surf club, and we were watching this couple, and um, they, they were a striking couple, both of them, very tall, and particularly the, the girl, you know, she was amazingly not New Zealander, you know, very tall, blonde, and I remember her hair, maybe a bit long, you know, shoulder length here, um, blowing in the wind, you know, and looking very tanned, very and very very like a model, you know. She she was wearing white shorts and a white t-shirty top, you know. Um, and um, we thought, oh, that's that's nice, you know. They they're having a good look at the the view, and um, you know, we left them to it, and went into Fungamata, and. Um, while in Fongmata, Joyce got some petrol for her car and she also visited the, the slipper dairy and the, ref, the rest of us stayed in the car. And um, when she came out, she said, that I just saw those 
that um, couple we saw at Furutoa and the Slipperdiri. And um, she said they're definitely, you know, European kind of sounding people. They were talking to one another about something that they either had bought or seen. And she said, I don't know if they were having an argument or what. I couldn't understand, but whether they thought it was a bit, maybe something they'd never seen before or whatever. She didn't know, but she was she was quite delighted to see them <laughs> again. And, um, and then we went to Chen's. Before leaving, Mary and I jump in the car and drive the short distance from her home down to the surf club in Furutoa, where I ask her to walk me through what she saw that day. Um, so I guess none of this, the, no playground would there have been... Would, there would have been a playground, but not to that extent. This is pretty new, yeah, that yeah. new one there. Uh, the, the surf club was like fairly much like that. They didn't have the public toilet there at those days. Um, because uh, my husband got involved in, in helping build this the new addition to the original was a concrete block was a surf club. Um, well, you're not going to find many with a better view than this. No, no, and the the bar is at the other side on on here. You know, on this new bit, yeah. newish, but now this this bit wasn't here, but. Um, so we would. So when you came along that day, which way were you guys going? Do you remember? We were coming along here, oh, and before we got to the corner, I think Joyce had sort of fumbled with something, and she stopped, and um, then she she looked over by the tree. Oh, over here. Yeah. By this tree here, yes. And um, they were there, and the, they were standing this side of the car. You know, the okay. pair of them were standing this side of the car. Looking out, you can you can see Mere Island and all the other islands and so on. Well, you kind of would imagine that you'd come in. Hey, here's a little spot. You come in, you'd drive, you just drive straight up yeah. here, wouldn't you? Yeah, but according to Joyce, she had seen them at the end of our, my road in the morning. Oh, so they may have they, stayed overnight. She felt that yeah, they were sort of waking up and um, oh, had when... slept in their car oh, okay. down there. I don't know about that. I don't know. Oh, I didn't I see it. Joyce, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you saw the cars parked. They're on this side of the car, closest yeah. to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just standing here, looking out. Just standing, out. looking out. Yeah. And, you know, pointing as you do. <laughs> does it make you? Um, how does it make you feel, sort of knowing that you saw them there? And oh, you just feel. I wish we'd taken them in. You know. Yeah. Um, because we did a lot of taking tourists up to right. Parakawai. It yeah. was a Quite right, right up to the, the waterfall, and um, we love doing that. And yes, New Zealand has that culture. It does. Where it you, does. Mm. It's just so sad that they, you know, they obviously ran into the wrong ones. It's it's heartbreaking, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Laurie said today he went to Whangamata after you left, and coming back past Parakawai. Mm. He had tears yeah. streaming down his face, you know. It's, it's certainly, um, you look at the place differently now, don't you? Yeah. Knowing what and, happened there. Yeah, and you're in such a small little town. Yeah, well, this isn't a town. Yeah. It's a small little village. Um, even now where there aren't very many residents. Um, it's just so... Yeah. And obviously such lovely people, you know, they're just not fair. Yeah. If it really was Heidi and Urban, Mary saw in Furatoa, this could make a lot of sense and could explain their movements after they were seen in Waihi. To my knowledge, it's never been known exactly where they slept from April 5th onwards. Police maintained that they drove from Waihi, where they were seen on the 5th, to Thames and that they never left. However, it's always been my belief that this didn't make sense. It would make more sense to follow the coast from Waihi, the short distance towards Furutoa and Whangamata, before then going on to Thames. Fortunately, Mary wasn't alone when she saw the couple that day. And she gave me the number of Joyce, who was also in the car, and who has kept a meticulous diary her entire life. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Today, Joyce is 95 years old, but as sharp as a tack. Hello. Hello, is this Joyce? Yes. Hey, this is Ryan Wolf. I uh, I met your friend Mary Williams yesterday. Yes, yes. She told me that you were uh, interested in the details about. What happened back those years ago? Yes, uh, unfortunately, I have got a bit of information still, but uh, when I moved into the retirement village, I got—I had a lot of information about it, and uh, I uh, no longer kept it, I'm afraid, but I've still got um, some things, and, and I still have quite clear memories. But what happened that morning was uh, we we walked along the beach to get the Herald at the shop. You know, it wasn't delivered down there, and we used to make a habit of walking down. And we worked, walked back along the beach. And you know where Mary lives, where that street goes down and curves? Yep. Down the bottom, just past Mary Street, it's up the first right of way okay. there. And anyway, we walked along the beach because uh, while it was, there was been a slight uh, frost out there, I don't know whether it was exactly a frost, but it was quite chilly. And we walked back along the beach, and as we came up onto the end of that street, they were re- uh, standing at the back of their station wagon, and they would were uh, they had obviously been sleeping, and people used to come and park down the end there for free, and in caravans and and particularly in um, cars they could sleep in, yeah. and they were just at the back of it repacking it, and and I remember making the comment. That it was for us. It felt quite a chilly morning, and she only had shorts and a, a, a t-shirt on, yeah. or, or a, a, you know, a short sleeve. Could have been short sleeve. And I do remember commenting on on that fact that she obviously wasn't uh, feeling the cold very much. So anyway, we went on up and we had our we had our breakfast. Uh, and I picked up the other people that we were taking. I was taking over to Thames for the day. And anyway, I said, I, I don't think I've got enough petrol to get there and back. I'll, I'll get petrol in along in the car. So uh, I went to the, you know, where the, the uh, petrol station is down at the northern end of Wongamataa. Yep. Yeah, well, and I don't know whether there's still a grocery shop there, but there was a small grocery shop there in those days next to the garage, and I saw this young couple come out of it, out of the grocery shop and recognised them. And anyway, 
uh, then uh, we got our petrol, and I think as, as they were leaving, I think they moved over to get petrol. Uh, but uh, anyway, we went on uh, that day and to Thames, and of course we heard nothing about it for a few days that people were missing. So uh, Mary uh, went to the police first. I think. I think she knew who the policeman was. And she told him that we'd both seen them that morning and uh, and that. And um, uh, as far as we knew, that they would have been quite happy. They didn't look as if they were having any, any trouble. Because at that stage, I think the police thought, oh, maybe they'd quarreled or something and broken up. Okay. I don't know what they were thinking, but they weren't terribly interested yeah. at that stage. And, uh, I mean, people in, on holiday like that can take off and park somewhere, you know, away from things. And as people did in the, in the Coromandel in those years. Yeah. And so I think they didn't take it as seriously very seriously at first. Yeah, and, and so Mary said that that she saw them by the surf club, and you were in the car with. Did you, did you see them again by the surf club? Oh yes, uh, yes, I saw them. They had stopped at the surf club, and they were taking photos. So, yes, I saw them down at the surf club taking the photos, and so uh, then uh, we uh, we went on to. Um, uh, Wonga Matara uh, in the car and as I said I pulled into petrol at the petrol station and they came out of the little grocery shop there they had reported by and when they started looking the people in the shops remembered that they'd been there but they couldn't pinpoint a time and that was what I could do almost exactly because I knew what time I'd arranged to pick up. I had several people in the car. We were going over to Thames for the day, and I had arranged to pick them up at a certain time. I think it was nine o'clock, but I wouldn't. It could have been quarter to quarter past. I can't remember, yeah. but I could more or less pinpoint. Uh, the the, uh, the time that they'd been in the grocery shop yeah. because of the going stopping to get the petrol. Did you um? And so Mary said that you kept a diary, and you would. Have... Yes, I did, but unfortunately, when I moved into this village, I didn't have the storage, and I got rid of almost everything before uh, my husband died in nineteen ninety seven. Did you? But so when you saw the pictures of them on on TV and in the newspaper, did you realise? Did you recognise them immediately? Oh, I recognised them immediately. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether I told. I don't know whether she was getting newspapers to the extent that my husband and I were faithful newspaper readers in those days. And uh, I don't know, Mary was busy with young children, so whether she was, uh, I don't know. But I, I remember talking to her about it. You know, just so in terms of identifying them, are you, at the time, you were 100% sure that was definitely them that you saw? Oh, quite, quite, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. It was definitely them, and it was... No, no two ways about it. It was definitely them. Or well, I was just looking, you know, for that. Um, just, just, just to know that you know that you saw them in Fongmata and Furatoa is um. Oh, I beyond a shadow of a doubt they were in Fongmata. Yeah, there is no question about about it. They would. I definitely saw them. When I was at the petrol station, and they came out of that, I don't even know if that little grocery shop still there next to the the, state, the petrol station. Yes, yes. Well, they, I, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I saw them come out there, 
and uh, uh, and then as uh, we were leaving, I'm pretty sure they went and got petrol. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yes. No, that that's fantastic. I mean, it's a thing you do when you're leaving one with the car before you head north, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, it is. That is what you do. You get gas there. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. What makes this witness sighting so credible is the fact that Joyce had actually kept a diary at the time and had noted that she'd seen the couple. And although she doesn't have that diary today, she still has old bank transaction notes that she made on April the 11th. What she says places the day she saw the couple somewhere in the days leading up to that entry. So with that in mind, Let's take a quick look at the known timeline of movements of Heidi and Urban in the days leading up to their disappearance. On the 4th of April 1989, they stayed in the last official campsite when they checked into the Omokoroa Tourist Park campground, which features thermal hot pools. The couple even made a note of this in the final letter they ever sent home. Last night, we slept in a camp for a change. Most of the time, we are just staying out in the open, in the countryside. The campground had its own thermal hot pools, and it was nice to sink into the pool at 9 o'clock in the evening, with all the stars in heaven above us. On Wednesday, April 5th, the pair were spotted by a number of people in the town of Waihee, which is often considered the gateway to the Coromandel. To my knowledge... The police were never able to confirm where the couple stayed from this time onwards, but simply stated that they believed they camped in Thames, perhaps at the end of Tararu Creek Road. Well, I believe that Mary and Joyce's sightings could be that final piece of the puzzle. If you recall, staff at Purcell Panel Works in Waihee recalled a couple fitting the description of the Swedes asking for directions to Fongamata. And as I've said before, it makes perfect sense to follow the coast this way. Following the road to Fongamata, after only 17 minutes, they would have come across Furatoa Beach. And following the short street, they would have arrived at the surf club and the stunning beach. And as they often would do, found a spot they could pitch their tent for free to stay the night. The following morning, they were seen by Joyce packing up their car and then again in Whangamata, walking out of the small grocery store and possibly getting gas. Graham Manning stated that he met the couple when they came to his grocery store in Thames to buy snacks. And despite him not being clear on the date originally, it seems the police settled on that date being April 6th somehow. However, Graham's daughters to this very day have doubts about whether their father's statement is accurate and were worried about his close connection to the police involved in this case. But if it were true, then that would mean the couple drove on to Thames from Whangamata on the 6th and camped somewhere unknown. Or they could have camped in or around Whangamata on the 6th and then driven to Thames on the morning of the 7th. One thing we know for certain as they were in Thames on Friday, April 7th. The Thames Post Office was the location they sent their last letter home. And it's believed they had their hair cut around 2pm that same afternoon. Murray Jenkins also believes he saw the couple drive past Friday morning near the Kopu roundabout outside of Thames around 10.30am. To be clear, there were many, many reported sightings of the couple at the time of the investigation all over the Coromandel. Everyone is always adamant that their sighting is accurate. But yet it simply wasn't possible for them all to be true. As such, I can't sit here and say that the Furutoa and Whangamata sightings I've mentioned in this episode are any different. But I believe they make sense. The path taken is logical and it ties in with other sightings and evidence. And that path is Waihee, Furutoa, Whangamata, Thames, then finally back to Parakawai and Whangamata. Why that happened 
I'll explain in the final episode when I give my theory on what I believe took place. I've said it before, that one of the most important words for any investigator is corroboration. When one witness says something, it's interesting, but it doesn't shake the foundations. But when two people say the same thing, well that's when I sit up and listen. And so it was that I recently received a message from a Furatoa resident, Graham. He was following up an earlier message he'd sent that I hadn't yet responded to. I receive so many tips every day and I'm just one person, so I have to prioritise the time I spend on different leads and at the time it hadn't seemed relevant to the case. Graham had messaged me near the start of my investigation regarding a mysterious bag he'd seen in Furatoa at the time of the Swede's disappearance. At the time, Furatoa didn't mean a huge amount to me, so I had marked it low priority. But when Graham heard the recent episode, Why Dig a Hole, where Joe spoke of seeing a man digging a hole at the northern end of Furatoa Beach, he messaged me again, with a bit more urgency, and said, Hey, I really think we need to speak. Because the place Joe says he saw the man digging the hole, and where I found the buried bag, they're the same place. My wife's birthday is on the 12th of April, which was a Wednesday in 1989. At that time we didn't have children and we were aiming to come up here as often as we could to make use of the place because it wasn't getting used as much as it deserved. So we were here regularly and it was either um, after that time or before that time that... um, no, it was certainly after that time that the case became known. I meet Graham on his beautiful Furatoa property, the front with the most unreal views of the ocean, and the back, leading down to the same area that Joe brought me only weeks earlier, where he says he saw the man digging a hole and a blonde girl. Graham and I sit down for a quick lunch, and then I ask him to take me through exactly what happened. 34 years ago. When we were here around that 12 April time, because it was my wife's birthday, I went to the back of the section, to the fence line, and I was just checking out what was happening with the Puhutakawa growth onto the property. Because, you know, you've got to keep it under control. And I came up to the top corner to look down the hill a little bit, Oh, it's magnificent. It's isn't it? it is, man. And in 1989, this fence wasn't here, this water tank wasn't here, this house wasn't here. This whole section belonged to that family there. Okay? okay. And I stood here and I looked down, straight down there, and I'll walk to the place in a minute to yeah. show you. And a Pohutakawa branch had uncovered a green plastic rubbish bag in the sand. I'll walk down and, and give you an idea of where yeah, it was. Yeah. So, so this tree was obviously a much smaller back then? Yep. Very much smaller. Now the best part of this whole thing, Graham, is the fact that that date and your wife's birthday, it just oh. can't get anything better than that in terms of time frame. Yeah, yeah, and, and it was... It was spooky and eerie about how the case uh, became public. But it was this branch here. Oh, so we're on the spot here. Yeah. And what had happened was, and this, this was much smaller. This, this branch, I don't think, was there then. It was this one here. Yeah, but it was a smaller branch. Yeah, and it was lower down. And what had happened was, and I remember about here, There was a space that this branch, I'm sure it was this branch, had brushed aside with the wind action and uncovered 
a green plastic bag, rubbish bag, about that space. And it, it was very weird because, as I said the other day, there was regular rubbish collection roadside here back then. And I don't ever remember seeing evidence of rubbish around here. So I, I touched it and it was full. It was smooth, it was full, completely chocker. It, it raised, I don't know, about four or five centimetres above the ground. But someone had gone to a lot of trouble to dig a hole in the sand to bury this rubbish bag. Graham and I are standing directly underneath a large Pahutakawa tree, which has low-hanging branches that sweep the ground. We're about 30 metres away from the water's edge below us. Today, grass and vegetation cover the sand. But according to Graham, in April of 1989, this area felt more like sand dunes. Yeah, so it's okay, this is, yeah, initially when we spoke, I sort of thought it was further down, so now they've really brought it up under the tree here. They've thought about where it's been placed. Now, keeping an open mind on it, it might have been someone who had some rubbish that they didn't want to put out into the public collection, so they were motivated to put the energy into digging a big old hole in sand, which, as we both know, is not that easy. But they'd buried the thing all the way down. Unfortunately, nature worked against them if they were trying to hide it and it uncovered about that section now this this bugged me for a long time and as I've said to you before I've dined out on this story a lot of times as much to help me try to understand it as to tell people about something weird that went on here I had mates and their kids around here with probes and stuff at one stage trying to find it and couldn't couldn't find anything but anyway once the story broke I came back to the beach as part of our regular visits and I went to find this thing and it was gone. Just to be clear, Graham says that on April 12th, 1989, he was visiting the beach house for his wife's birthday. This is when he was looking down the back of his property towards the water and saw the top five centimetres of a rubbish bag, visible only because a low-hanging branch had swept away the top layer of sand. At the time, he thought it was strange, given the location, but didn't think too much of it. Then some weeks later, when the news of the missing Swedes broke, he remembered this strange bag, and wondered if it could be somehow related. And when he came back to check, the bag was gone. Yes, yeah, so, so you went away that day. When you saw the bag, though, you didn't really think... It was a bit weird, but you didn't think too much of it. No. Had I had my pocket knife with me, I would have opened it to see what was in there. And to this day, that's my biggest regret about that day. Yeah. I didn't... You go away, though, then the Swede thing hits the news. Yep. And you naturally think it's in the Coromandel. You think, oh, yep. So you come racing back, and it's gone. It's gone. And it was gone to the point where it looked like the sand had not been disturbed. Whoever had taken it away, exactly, whoever had taken it away was motivated enough to return the area to its original state. Right here. Yeah. And and a lot of this underground vegetation not here? Not here. A a lot of this, yeah, this was just sand that was all open through here. These branches didn't extend that, that way as much. Because so I, here, that would all just be sand. To yeah, the water. yeah, and I could I could see the green bag from the top of the section. Yeah, right. That's yeah. what drew me to it. Wow. And so yeah, so from here you would have been able to see down to the lagoon. Clearly. Yep. Isn't it interesting in a way that you even at the time connected it to that case? Yeah. Because it was obviously that odd. It was. It was. As I say, who buries shit in, in the lee side of, a, of the sea when there's a good rubbish collection available? Those trees weren't there. If they were, they were much smaller. And, you know, since we talked and I listened to Joe's... Yep. Um, interview I was able to visualise where he was talking and it turns out that 
I wasn't far off the mark. And if we were a little bit further along. Yeah, you are a little bit further along, but I don't know where the tent was that he saw. But back in that day, all of this area was a hell of a lot more accessible than what it is now. Naturally, my first thought was that this is probably just a bag of rubbish that some untidy Kiwi has decided to bury here in the dunes, instead of putting it out for rubbish collection. Then some tidy Kiwi has come along, seen the bag, removed it, and tidied up the sand. But at the same time, given the date Graham saw the bag being April 12th, and the fact that it fits eerily well with Joe's story, it needs to be given some attention. Joe told me he couldn't remember the exact spot, but that it was definitely close to the water's edge because he says when he saw the hole, it was filling with water. Well, this location Graham saw the bag is well above the waterline and around 100 metres from where Joe said he saw the man digging. But is it possible that the man decided a hole by the water wouldn't work, so instead chose a spot further up the sand? The strange thing is the location. To be clear, this is not a spot the public visit. You don't walk along the beach here. And when there's free rubbish collection, why dig a hole to bury a bag? As I leave, I make plans with Graham to include this location in our upcoming searches, just to be sure that either the bag or something else isn't still there. But later that day and the next, I receive a stream of videos from Graham. He just couldn't wait, and he's turned the side of the bank into Swiss cheese. Well, let's pull the pin time, mate. The only thing to show for today's dig is this piece of old busted plastic plate. And potentially it's in line with what could have been the original elbow branch that's rotted away and snapped. Right down here, I've dug down to a metre. There's nothing else there. But I've had more digs, another three or four holes over here heading out down towards the stream. And as Andre reported earlier, all of this area has been turned over. I don't know, about 20, 25 holes now. But what would really work, I think, is a metal detector. It would make the job that much quicker. That is, if there's any metal still in the remains to be found or in there in the first place. But anyway, mate, we're um, pulling the pin and heading back tomorrow. Keep me up to speed. Good luck with the hearing. Cheers. 20 holes and no hits other than an old trowel. So what to make of it? Was it just a bag of rubbish? Buried, then collected by someone innocently? Or was it something more sinister? According to Graham, when he returned to find the bag had been removed, it all just felt off. And this location, to bury such a big bag. Why? To this day, it eats him up. That he never took the time to cut the bag open and check its contents. What was in the bag? We'll never know. But one thing that is becoming clear is that the small beach town of Furatoa is becoming more prominent as my investigation continues. And I can assure you that the biggest revelations about this place and this case are yet to be heard. But in next week's final episode, I'm going to pull back the curtain. And all will be revealed. In an episode... It is going to both shock and sadden you. Is the truth of this case finally, after 34 years, sees the light of day? Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. 
All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find further photos and videos on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a subscriber on Apple or Acast+. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.